Why don't you pray with me and then we'll dive in. Father God, we, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you this morning, to come and, and to be together as a church body, uh, to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy lifting our voices together, adding our voices to, to the songs being sung around this town, around the world today in worship of you, Jesus. God, we thank you for the privilege of, of having your word that we can sit under and be taught by and shaped by. And we ask now, as we open your word, God, that you would speak, that you'd hold back any, any words that are not of you, that you would make more prominent the things that you want us to hear. And God, that you would shape us, again, to be more like your son through your word. God, as we reflect on, the, on this last week, our country uh, commemorated Martin Luther King Day. And, and as a church, we, we know that we are not sinless, that each of us uh, has sins in our lives that we are blind to. And we pray, God, uh, just as, as our country thinks about his life and, and his work to overcome racism in our country and, and provide rights for, for those who did not have any at his, in his day, uh, God, as we reflect on that, we just say, Holy Spirit, reveal to us any uh, besetting sins, any blindness to sins that we have in our lives. Specifically, God, if we have within us any of the, the sin of partiality, we pray that you'd reveal it to us, that you'd root it out, Jesus, and that you'd make us, again, more like yourself. That we would, would be those who are able to love uh, across every human boundary, including race. And especially today in our country where, where there's a lot of conversations about race, we ask that your church would lead the way in being those who, who are able to love well and repent well uh, of, of anything that's not of you. God, our country also saw a, a big march for life as, as those uh, in our country who remember Roe v. Wade and are celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade in our country. And, and we pray again, God, for our country. We pray as a church that we would lead the way in being those who are committed to life. That we'd be those committed to holding forth human dignity, that, that every human that's been made in your image that we could say, yes, we want to support and champion and be about life. We pray for your church that we would be those who, who lead the way in caring for the orphan, in caring for the widow, in caring for those who, who are marginalized, and that we'd lead the way in saying every life is worth love, every life is worth uh, care, and that your church, again, would be at the forefront leading the way in that. God, is, is it, as a church, as we, we turn now and pivot towards studying the book of Acts for the next year and plus, we ask that this book uh, just would be a, a, a tool in your hands to do amazing work in us. We know as, as we open this book that it's exciting, that there's a lot of, of uh, miraculous things that happen, eye-opening things that happen, but God, we pray that, that as, as we look to it, that we would see similar things happening among us. God, as we enter into this season of, of examining what you were doing in the early church, God, that we'd be able to rejoice that you are the same God. You are the same Lord, and your same Spirit is at work today in us and among us. And so even this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come? Uh, would you speak? Would you move? And would we have a sense of your presence and your power in this place, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. 
Well, good morning, church. Uh, this morning, we are kicking off a new study, uh, as, I, as I prayed about, in the book of Acts. We will be living in this book together for over a year. There's going to be a few breaks along the way in the summer and the fall for Advent. Uh, but we're going to be here, I think, until next Easter, Easter 2025. And so we just get to just relish in what Jesus did through the Spirit in the church uh, in those very, very early days after Christ ascended. Now, for those newer to the Christian faith or newer to the Bible, uh, let me give you a little flyover of the Bible. Maybe you're like, what is the book of Acts? Where is it? How do I find it? Let me help you out, okay? The Bible, okay, if you have your Bible, you can essentially split the Bible into two main sections, okay? Generally, first half, it's more than half, but generally the first half is what's called the Old Testament. The second half is the New Testament. The Old Testament is the story of God working out his redemption among his people, uh, the people of Israel, from creation all the way up through the exile when the people were kicked out of their land, and it kind of sets the stage for Jesus. After the close of the Old Testament, there was 400 years of silence until Jesus came on the scene. But when he shows up on the scene, we then get to our New Testament, and we get the four Gospels. Okay, Gospel just means good news. It's the four accounts that we have in our Bibles of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. And that's the, it's the story of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is what opens the New Testament. Well, following the four Gospels, you get the book of Acts. That's what we're going to be diving into as a church. And Acts, it's kind of a transitional book. It's the story, well, of the word of God spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. As as the work of Christ takes root among his people and they realize what this means, it then spreads into churches that that spread across, in the book of Acts, it's it's kind of the Mediterranean into the, the Roman world, into Europe, but we know that it continues and has continued to spread around the globe, around the world. In your Bible, if, after Acts, you get, what are letters? A bunch, a long, you know, not a long. There's, there's New Testament letters, which are written uh, by various apostles to many of the people or the churches that we find in the book of Acts. So as you read the book of Acts, we're going to see the planting of the church of Philippi. And you can go read Philippians after. We're going to see the, ch- the church get planted in Ephesus and in Thessalonica and all these different places that then we can go and read the letters that are then written to those very churches by one of the apostles. The New Testament ends with, it's called the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John. He was one of the apostles who got a wild vision of the end. And if you read that book, you know, your hair will frizz and curl as you're like, what is happening right now? Um, and it's, it's a story of the end. We find out that Jesus wins in the end and that God comes to dwell with man for all of eternity. And it's, it's really good news. Um, so that's, that's an overview of the Bible. We're in that book of Acts, that transitionary period from the life and times of Jesus and then the start and the kickoff of the church. It's the pivot point in our New Testament as the good news of Jesus is spread to the ends of the earth. All right, are you there yet in your Bibles? Have you found Acts? If you're not, okay, open your Bible about halfway, turn right, keep going forward, get through the ayahs, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, eventually you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, okay? Acts chapter one is where we are this morning. Let me read our passage, and then we'll get into the text together. But Acts one 1 to 5. We read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking 
about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Church, this is the word of the Lord. We can say thanks be to God. That's right. All right. To organize our thoughts this morning, uh, I'm going to zero in on three actions of Jesus that we find in our passage. So there's three verbs, three things that we see Jesus do. Verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus began. Verse 3, Jesus presented. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus ordered. Okay, Jesus began. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus presented. Verse 3, Jesus ordered, verses 4 and 5. Are you ready? Let's get into it. Jesus began, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 in your Bible. We read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All right. If we were to like take our, I grew up in the church, hats off, and some of you are like that to me every day, okay? If you take that hat off, and you're brand new to the Bible, you'd have all kinds of questions, okay? All kinds of questions from that first verse. First book? What first book? Theophilus? Who is that? You know, who is the I that is writing to O Theophilus? Well, let me work through this for us. The I or the author is Luke. Or as Paul calls him, I think it's in the book of Colossians, uh, he calls him the beloved physician, okay? Now, interestingly, if you were to do a deep dive study of the book of Acts, study the gospel of Luke, well, you would find out that the author is actually never named in either of those books. You never come across the name Luke in either of those books. And so you might ask, why do we attribute them to Luke? Well, what we're going to see as we're working through Acts, this probably won't come until the fall or sometime around then, um, what we're going to see is when we get to the, the, the story of Paul's missionary journeys as he's spreading out into Asia Minor and then into Greece and into Rome, uh, that along the way, all of the, the pronouns, the story's being told in, in a third person. So it's, they went here, and he did this, and then they did that, and then he did this, and it's, you know, they, 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 he, he, he. And then all of a sudden, as the story's told, boom, one day, it says we. And then we departed, I don't know, Troas, and went to Macedonia. I, those, I don't know if that actually happened with Luke. We'd ha we'll have to get there. Uh, but it, all of a sudden, it changes to we. And you realize, whoa, 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 the author has entered the story. He's now a part of things. And, you know, he goes for a little bit, and then he gets left off, and it says they again. You realize, oh, he got, he got dropped in that port, and he's hanging out there until they come back to get him. And a couple chapters later, then it's we again. And you realize the author is in this story. Well, uh, careful readers have, have known this, or noticed this, I should say, and realize, okay, the author was one of Paul's companions on his journeys. Well, then we can compare the story that we find in Acts with the New Testament letters, and kind of corroborate, okay, where was Paul when this happened? And then where was he writing these letters? What do we know about that? And people have deduced, figured out, oh, it's Luke. Luke was the one who was traveling with them. He is the we, uh, and he is, well, he's a doctor. Now, this is further corroborated by the fact that the author of Luke and Acts has the most um, technical and skilled use of Greek in the New Testament. I'm not that good at Greek to know that, but that's what the experts tell me, uh, that when you read the Greek, that there's like, you know, those who's like, yeah, they might be a Greek speaker. They probably had a different language first. And then you get to Luke and you're like, whoa, this is like the most fluid. His language, it's clear that he has an ability and a skill uh, with the language that the other New Testament offers don't have. Not only that, uh, historians have looked and, and studied and realized the, the impeccable attention to detail 
that Luke includes both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. And this suggests someone who had a high degree of education and was familiar with the Greek-speaking world. Okay, all the names, the places, the dates, they're, they're spot on. So we know the author of the I is Luke. The first book that he mentions, therefore, when he says in the first book, O Theophilus, that first book is the Gospel of Luke. Now, again, you say, if he wasn't named in Luke, how do we know that? Well, we actually know it because of the mention of Theophilus. So, again, Luke isn't named in his Gospel. But if you have your Bible, we got time. Turn with me there. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Um, and go to the start, Luke chapter 1, and see what he writes there. Um, I like the sound of the pages turning. That's good, okay? I mean, some of you have your Bibles. All right, Luke chapter 1. Here's what we read from the author there. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Okay, most excellent Theophilus. There it is. That's how we know Luke and Acts are kind of the the first book and the second book. They're both written from this author to this man named Theophilus. Okay, the Gospel of Luke is the first book. Acts is the sequel. Now, you may still be wondering, who's Theophilus? And the simple answer is, we don't really know. (laughs) <laughs> we, we, we don't have uh, a clear answer from scriptures. Some have suggested that he was a, a high-ranking Roman official in the government, and Luke was writing to him to kind of say, hey, don't worry about the church. It's okay. Um, they, they're, they're guessing this because of the honorific that Luke uses, you know, most excellent Theophilus, that those were terms that were designated for officials, people of high rank and authority. When I hear them, all I hear is Keanu Reeves from Bill and Ted's, like, most excellent Theophilus. Um, that's where mine goes. The name Theophilus, it just means God-lover, okay, God-lover. So while it's very likely there was a real Theophilus that Luke was writing to, we can also say that this book is written to every Theophilus, to every God-lover. It's for all of us. Now, before we turn back to Acts, just, just hang with me for one second. Let's zero in on this, on this first book, on Luke, just a little longer, because it helps us understand Luke's, Luke's purpose for writing. So he says, Luke 1.1, that he compiled a narrative, okay, according to eyewitnesses, and then down in verse uh, 3, he wrote an orderly account, okay? Luke is writing history. He's compiling all the information from eyewitnesses, people who saw it, and he's trying to write down an orderly account. He's trying to, to collect and write history. He's recording the story as it happened. And it turns out, that Luke is a really good historian. So there's a scholar in the early 20th century, I don't think he was a believer, but he was an expert on first century Rome. And he went down and was was working through Luke and Acts and he said, this guy's um, ability to talk about names and places and where they are, it's unrivaled in terms of works about first century Mediterranean. When Luke says, hey, it was one day's journey from this place to this place, he said, it's spot on. When they sail from here to here and you look at a map, it's, it's, top notch. And so this guy concluded, he said, Luke was one of the foremost historians of his time. And so as we come to, well, these books, but Acts in particular as readers, we can enjoy this story. We can say, wow, this is such an exciting story. But we need to remember, this really happened. Luke is writing down what really happened. These are real people in real places. This is history. 
But it's not just bare facts. It also has a purpose. It's for us. So the second thing to note, uh, well, yeah. The second thing to note with history or narrative, when you're, whenever you come across narrative or, or history in the scriptures, you need to remember that what's being recorded is what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Do you see the difference? What we find in Acts is, is an account of what actually happened, not necessarily, therefore you should always do this. Sometimes what gets recorded is you know, boneheaded maneuvers and things that shouldn't have happened. So people say that what we find in the narrative in Scripture is it's descriptive, it's not always prescriptive. Okay, there's times when we're like, absolutely follow their example. Other times, no, don't be like David, you know, committing adultery with Bathsheba. Just because it's there doesn't mean we go and try to do it. Um, that's not how narrative works in the scriptures. Um, but the virtues that we find often, are, you, you know what to follow be, by what's reaffirmed in other places or what's reaffirmed or taught elsewhere. So we could say that what we find in Acts, what we find in Luke, it's a model for church life. It's not necessarily an instruction manual. So, Luke compiled this narrative, but again, we can ask why. Why did he write down this history? Okay, it's not just an interest in history. There's a purpose. Again, look at verse 4 of Luke 1. He says, I wrote this orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke writes to Theophilus, who's been taught about Jesus, and he, he wants to record in the most orderly way he can the narrative he's compiled from eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, so that Theophilus can have assurance. Luke is telling Theophilus, Jesus really did what you have heard that he did. Jesus really is who you have heard that he is. Jesus really taught what you heard that he taught. That's why Luke wrote his gospel, to, to offer assurance, to give assurance to Theophilus. Now, as we move back to our book, back to Acts, if you, you have a paper, turn there, or punch it into your phone, get back to Acts 1, okay? We can turn back to Acts 1, chapter 1. Luke continues writing to Theophilus, and it's safe to infer that he's still writing to give Theophilus assurance. Acts is, is for us, it's to give us assurance, but notice that word in verse 1, okay, it's, it's on our outline on the screen, that word began. He says the first book was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. This book, Acts, is all about what Jesus will continue to do and teach. So my Bible, I don't know about yours, first page, the title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. I've heard some people argue, no, that's a bad title. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because of how prominent the Holy Spirit is in this book. And that's true. Others have said, no, 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 no. It's, it's the mission of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all working in concert with one another to, to you know, plant and grow and spread the church. All of that's true. But I can't get past that word began. All that Jesus began to do and teach. If Luke's gospel was about what Jesus began then Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And so I like John Stott, not just because he agrees with me, but he says, you know, Acts is the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. It's a mouthful, but that's, it's true. That's what we're going to find this next year in Acts, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. Jesus continued to do and teach throughout the book of Acts, 
and he continues today. This story isn't over. It's continuing on today. Now that gives us kind of a, a counterbalance to what we said earlier about Acts as history. This history matters to us today. It has an impact on today. So on the one hand, Acts is telling us about a unique moment in history. And there are, there are moments in Acts that are non-repeatable events. Okay? Things that happen to establish a community of faith, and they're not going to be repeated. For example, Pentecost. Okay? When the Holy Spirit is poured out for the first time, you know, Jesus, the Son, came down in the Incarnation. Here the Holy Spirit comes in a unique way at Pentecost that has never happened before, won't be repeated, but it's also not reversible or retractable. The Holy Spirit's here. Those who are in Christ have him now. It's amazing. Another example, the reestablishment of the 12 apostles. We're going to see this in two weeks. You know this funny passage about choosing Matthias, okay, to, so, so that there are 12 apostles. Okay, we don't continue to replace apostles year after year when one dies. That kind of happened then, and it's, we don't do that again. Okay, we could say the fate of Ananias and Sapphira, if you know that story, that's not to be seen as any time someone you know, lies in the church, they should be killed on the spot. Okay, we don't repeat that. That said... Acts also provides guidance for the church for every age. It's not locked into history. So it, it may not be an instruction manual, but it does give us a model to look at. So New Testament uh, scholar Patrick Schreiner, he says, its, its message can't be locked in the past. Its accomplishments can't be relegated to a bygone era. Its miracles can't be separated to another age. The same spirit is still active. The same Christ still rules. The same God still sustains his church. And the same resurrection days reside. He goes on, and this is going to come up on the screen. I love it. He says, the scope of what happens in Acts is nothing short of remarkable. Within the space of 30 years, the gospel is preached in the most splendid, formidable, and corrupt cities. It reaches the holy city of Jerusalem, the city of the philosophers in Athens, the city of magic in Ephesus, and the empire, Rome. Its message and work were not done in a corner. Its victories and opposition were not minor blips in history. Acts recounts the struggle and success of the gospel message going forth, all under the plan of God, centered on King Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. And friends, the struggle and success of the gospel message going forth continues today. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus began. Okay, that word began is key. In the first book of Theophilus, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In this book, we're going to see what he continues to do and teach by his spirit through the church. Luke wants Theophilus to know and he wants us to know that Jesus is still at it. Be assured, know with certainty, Luke says. Okay, Jesus began. Let's move to the next verb in verse 3. Jesus presented. Jesus presented. Our passage, our passage this morning, it's an interesting one. Not only is it an introduction to the book of Acts, it's also a recap of the end of Luke's gospel. Okay, do you know that word, recap? Did you know it's just the short form of the longer word, recapitulation? Okay, you're like, what does recapitulation mean? It's for smart people who want to say recap. Um, it means to go over again and summarize. Okay, you're, you're going to repeat and you're going to summarize. You're going to give a little recap. Well, our passage is this week and next week. They're part of Luke's recap of the end of Luke 24. Okay, maybe in your community group this week, you looked at those verses. You read the end of, of Luke 24, and you saw the resurrected Christ, a 
appearing to his disciples, presenting himself alive. He says, hey, do you got any fish? He starts eating with them and instructing them about all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. And then he promises the the Holy Spirit. He says, it's coming. And so here, verse 3, in Luke's recap, we read, he, meaning Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So this is after his death on the cross. He's raised. He presented himself alive by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom. Okay. Over the next year, we're going to see what Jesus did and taught through the church as the gospel spreads. But all that takes place after his ascension, when he ascends to the Father. In between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, for 40 days, Luke tells us here that Jesus, well, he presented himself alive. We may ask, okay, he began to do and teach. Well, what, what did he do and teach for those 40 days? Well, Luke tells us. What did he do? He proved that he was alive by many proofs. What did he teach? He taught them about the kingdom. Jesus is doing and teaching. Okay, he says, hey, I'm really alive. And then he's teaching about the kingdom. To put it differently, we could say for 40 days he showed them that he is alive and he is king. That, that, that time in between resurrection and ascension is to, to establish with the apostles, I'm alive and I'm reigning. I am king. He's teaching about the kingdom. Yes, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's seated there. He's reigning and ruling through his church by the power of the Spirit right now. But get this. He's not gone. He's not absent. He's not impotent. Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. That's what those 40 days were all about. Now again, in the coming weeks, we're going to see what happens to a people who actually believe this. We get to see in the text a people who actually believe that Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. And we get to see what happens. We're going to see in a few weeks, Peter's going to declare his very first sermon, uh, actually on Pentecost. He's going to declare to the people, he's going to say, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, they know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, you tried to kill him, but God raised him up. And he's Lord in Christ. He is King and Messiah, and he is reigning. Jesus is alive, and Jesus is King. The rest of the book of Acts will demonstrate, as the church explodes and spreads, that Jesus is alive and Jesus is King, as his disciples live out, well, kingdom living. The small band of Christ's followers that gathered after the resurrection would explode into a worldwide church. In a few generations, they would take over the Roman world, not because Jesus was a good moral teacher, but because Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. Luke writes to give Theophilus certainty, assurance, that Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. Now we could hypothesize it and just imagine for a second. Maybe Theophilus was a a Roman official who was wondering, okay, I think I believe in this Jesus, but... But how can this ragtag, persecuted church, how could they possibly be a kingdom more powerful than the empire? I mean, how how could their Lord be more powerful than Caesar? Maybe Theophilus is thinking, I mean, Caesar, he had the power of the sword. And Luke says, oh, but Jesus has the power of the spirit. And then Theophilus is thinking, but Caesar, he's got his military. And Luke writes, no, no, but Jesus has his church. And it's moving and Theophilus is thinking, yeah, but Caesar could kill. He could subjugate. He could enslave. And Luke writes, but 
Jesus gives life. He can liberate. He sets free. He's writing to give assurance. The rest of the book of Acts, the miracles and the sermons, they're all proclaiming that Jesus is not dead. He's on the move. He's alive and he's reigning from heaven by the power of his spirit through the church. And as his rule and reign spreads through his word, his kingdom is advancing. Now, I might ask at this point, what about you, O Theophilus? Do you need certainty? Do you need assurance of this? I mean, when you look out at our world, when you look at your life, do you wonder where is Jesus? I mean, you see the, the power of, of, well, militaries, the power of military conflict. You see the power to kill. It's happening all around our world. Maybe you see the power of, of partisan politics. You're overwhelmed. You know, you wonder what voice the church has amongst all that noise. Maybe you see the power of consumerism, the promise of comfort and the grip that it has on Americans, myself included. Maybe you wonder, in all of that, where is Jesus? Is he absent? Is he, is he hiding? Did he leave us? Luke says, no, no. He's alive and he is king. This account that, that we find, that we're going to find in the book of Acts, it has the power to inspire faith in this reality. And yes, it requires faith. And so we are going to look at this book. We're going to study this book to get assurance, to find that certainty. But my hope is that this book also causes us to look at ourselves and realize that this reality is being lived out among us. We can look in our church and see the reality of Jesus' well, life and, and his kingship among us. There are really those among us clinging to hope in the midst of darkness. Wow, Jesus is king. He's alive. There are really those among us who are pressing into the pain and brokenness of, well, of loved ones and family members with tenderness and light. They're bringing the love of Jesus because Jesus is alive. and He's king of their life. There are those among us who are storming the gates of loneliness and doubt and broken families and besetting sins, and they are declaring in those places that Jesus is alive and he is king. It's happening here. And I'm so excited to look at Acts almost as a mirror to say, wow, what is God doing among us? When we live as those who believe this, watch out. And we're going to see it in Acts. It's explosive. And I'm so excited to see what might happen in our world, what might happen in Camarillo when we get a hold of this truth that Jesus is alive and he's king. All right. Verses 1 and 2. That word began. You know, it tells us that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Verse 3. Jesus presented. He showed himself to his disciples. We know that he's alive and he is king. We come finally to verses 4 and 5 where our passage ends with him issuing some commands. Okay. Jesus began, Jesus presented, finally, Jesus ordered. Verses 4 and 5. I love this. The risen Christ, he's alive, he's king, and we see him in these first few verses issuing royal orders. Verse 2 says he gave commands through the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. The kingdom is here. The king is alive. He's risen. He's reigning in power. And what's his first command to his people? Wait. Wait. I mean, I, I, I want something else. I want action. I want activity. And Jesus says, wait. Really? Wait? Yes, wait. 
I, I both love it and hate it. <laughs> I mean, the first step in the king's strategy is wait. So those with an MBA and, and the leadership gurus, they're cringing. They want strategy. They want something to do. They want action. And Jesus says, wait. Wait? I mean, wh- what does that mean? Well, r- really, like, what do you do if someone tells you to wait? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what to do. It just means wait. I mean, think about the response of the disciples. He says, hey, hey, stay here and wait. And maybe the disciples are like, okay, cool. Okay, we're going to wait. Um, how long, Jesus? And he says, not many days from now. What does that mean? So specific, Jesus, not many days? They just have to wait. They are going to continue his doing and teaching. I mean, he, he promised them. We read about this in John. He promised them that they would do greater things than he had done. Miracles are coming. Life change is coming. The spread of the kingdom is coming. But first, they must wait. Very specifically, they must wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. Now, as aggravating as this is to me, probably to us, the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled. It's not something that we manage. And so Jesus says, wait. In Luke 24, again, maybe you read it this week, Jesus says the promise of the Father will come and they'll be clothed with power from on high. Okay, the king's power is coming. Next week, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to say they will receive power when the Spirit comes. In the context of, of the history of redemption, this is a very you know, unique and specific command. They need to wait for Pentecost. Once Pentecost happens, they go. But we nonetheless can just pause on that command, and we can glean some important things from this for ourselves. For Jesus to say wait, well, it means that he's sovereign, and they're not. Things are going to happen, but they're in his timing and not theirs. They don't get to say when this happens. Jesus gets to say, and so he can say wait. For Jesus to say wait means that he has authority, and they do not. Things are going to happen, but not from their power, not from them white-knuckling it, no. They'll come from his power, not theirs. For Jesus to say, wait, well, if you remember our, our time, I think it's two years ago, we we're looking at the abide, abiding in Jesus. For him to say, wait, means that he is the vine, and we are the branches. Apart from him, they and we can do nothing. And so Jesus says, wait, wait. This is instructive for us. I mean, how many of us, we, we're people who like to get down to business, right? We want to drive the ship. We want things to happen in our timing at our beck and call. We want, well, I want to white knuckle things, to pull myself up on my bootstraps. I want things to happen in my own power and my own effort. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. That's not how it works. No, 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 I'm alive. And I am king. And if, belie- if you believe that, you will learn to wait. Wait on me. Wait and then see what happens. A friend of mine uh, wrote, wrote a great book uh, called Waiting. Waiting. Finding Hope When God Seems Silent. And in it, in this book, he kind of unpacks, he says, waiting is it's really hard and it requires two key virtues. To be able to wait on God requires humility and it requires hope. Requires humility to, to wait. It says, okay, just, just pause. You're not in charge. Be humble. Wait for God. Hope says, you don't despair. You're not giving up. You're not saying, I'm done with that. So you need humility. You need hope to wait. 
Well, it struck me as I was preparing this week that humility and hope, they come from believing that Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. If we believe that he's king, we will humbly wait for his timing, his means, his plan to unfold. And if we believe that he is alive, well, then we will have hope. Because we know he's not absent, he's not gone, and he is worth waiting for. Humility and hope. Jesus is alive and he's king. Now maybe this morning you hear all this talk about the birth of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the kingdom of God. You're thinking, okay, that sounds great. (laughs) What about my life? I mean, what, what about my family? What about my mess? What about, what about my addiction? What about my loneliness? What about my financial crisis? What about my disappointment? How can I possibly trust God in this season of my life? It will require humility. It will require hope. Friends, Jesus is alive. And Jesus is king. So we can wait. That's the message of the passage. That's that's what Luke is trying to communicate through the Spirit to us. We can wait because he's alive and he is king. I know this is hard. I mean, we may get annoyed at our kids for their impatience. I don't know. Okay, you guys are perfect parents. You never get annoyed. I get annoyed at my kids' impatience. But I'm just like them. I am. I mean... This is a regular, well, regular, every other month occurrence. Uh, when Karis' mom comes to visit us for the day to help out, she's going to come, you know, be there for the day. Uh, and our kids, if, if they know in advance, they will be tugging on our arm all morning, okay, just asking, asking, when is she going to get here? Hey, when is, when is she going to get here? When is she going to get here? Is she here yet? Is she close? When is she coming? When is she coming? When is she coming? And we're like, let me make some eggs, okay? They now know that Karis has location sharing with her mom on her phone, which is trouble, and so they're saying, grab your phone. Come on, where is she? Is she in Ventura yet? Come on, is she in Oxnard yet? Has she made it to the outlets yet? Come on, where is she? When is she coming? When is she going to get here? And you're just like, oh, I can't stand this. They're waiting, they're waiting. And then they find out, oh, she's off the freeway. And so what do they do? They run outside, they run down the corner. They want to get a little bit closer down to the corner because they want to shorten the time between, well, now and the end of their wait. They're trying to you know, drag the future into the present as much as they can. Now, I know some of us feel like that when we wait. We, we're trying to, to drag God's timing into the now, to drag the future into the present, to shorten our wait. And I think that's, that's good, friends. Now, this analogy breaks down just a little bit because we can't track the Holy Spirit's movement on our phones. Um, you know, Jesus said the Spirit, <laughs> the Spirit is like the wind. We can't control him. We're not always sure which way he's going to blow. Friends, we can wait. We can prepare. We can, you know, for the sailors out there, we can trim our sails. We can get ready for him to blow. We can be expectant. We can pray to Jesus. We can tug on Jesus' arm and say, when, Jesus? My life's a mess. I'm ready. When? When are you going to come? When is the spirit going to break out in my life? That's okay to do. Read the Psalms. You can pray like the psalmist. How long, O Lord? You can pound that door. You can tug on God's, you know, shirt tails and beg and say, come on, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm waiting. 
That's what waiting looks like. Expectation, longing, hunger. Waiting means remembering that we are not in charge. We have neither the authority nor the power to push the kingdom forward. But if Jesus is alive and Jesus is king, well, then we can wait with eager expectation. Church, as we begin this season studying the book of Acts together, I'm so excited to see what God does through this book precisely because of what we found in our passage this week. Jesus is alive. He's king. He's still continuing to do and teach by the power of his spirit through the church. And therefore, I invite you, wait on him. Wait on him. Expect big things in this next season. Expect big things out of our study. Pray. Tug on his arm. Don't let him loose. Bug him until he shows up. We can wait with humility and hope because Jesus is alive. He's king and he's worth it. Let me pray.